We're going to continue on looking at the book of Acts. Um, If you open your Bibles, we're going to get right into it. We're looking at chapter 3, and today we're going to be covering the sermon. We've been discussing this second sermon of Peter. It's the second sermon in three chapters that Peter has preached. The first was on the day of Pentecost. The second is right on the tales of it, and it's sort of an impromptu sermon. It's not given necessarily on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. This is a sermon that takes place as the result of a miraculous healing of a crippled man, which we talked about last week. It's a man that's healed, and there's a, a, a large crowd in the temple, and the crowd sees this guy who used to sit and beg day after day after day. We're told a little bit later that he had been there for crippled for 40 years, so probably for decades. This man had been a familiar face, except he was down on the ground, and now he's jumping and leaping around the temple. And that incident is the setting for Peter's second sermon, which we're going to look at today. And so I'd ask, would you, would you turn to Acts chapter 3? We're going to read verses 11 through 26 together. And would you stand with me as we do this? We're told in verse 11, while he, he being the crippled man that had been healed, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now you disowned the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these things. It is you who are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For for you first God raised up his servant, And sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great unshakable truth that you are eternal and unchangeable. Peter's words in the verses that we have just read testify that you accomplish what you set forth to do. Nothing can thwart your hand. Nothing can change what you're seeking to accomplish. Nothing undermines you or causes what you're doing to be surprised by something else. All has been fulfilled. And Father, we this morning rest in that truth. We live in that truth. And yet, Father, we acknowledge that all too often we aren't focusing on that truth. That we're focusing on things that are transient, that pass, that are, that are vain, that, that don't last forever. So many things occupy our minds that fall short of this glorious reality. And so we ask that you would confront us afresh this morning, confront us again this morning with the reality of this truth, that you have accomplished your will. Change our hearts, Father. Redirect our gaze. Speak through me as I preach your word. And be honored in it and by our attentive ears. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as I said, we're following up on last week's sermon where we described the situation of the healing of the crippled man outside the eastern gate of the temple at the gate which was called Beautiful. There's been this phenomenon, this healing that has grabbed everyone's attention and caused many probably thousands, to be in amazement of what has gone on. And Peter begins the sermon by asking the crowd a rhetorical question. He begins by saying, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had healed this man? Now, the truth is that if you saw a man that was crippled, healed, you probably would be amazed too, wouldn't you? Is it a new thing for the crowd to be amazed at the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus and his disciples did? Is it wrong to be amazed by the miraculous signs and wonders that God might choose to do? Is that wrong? Well, no. No, you and I would have a very similar reaction, I trust. It's not wrong to be amazed, but the point of Peter's question is not to say that there's nothing special about what's gone on. The point of Peter asking this question is to get the crowd to recognize that there's something else contrasting with what they've seen that really should be the thing that they're amazed by. He's saying, really? You're, you're surprised by this? You're amazed at this? And he's about ready to tell them something, to pull back the curtain on something so much greater that they should be amazed by. And that's the point. That's the reason he, he sets this up with a rhetorical question to the, to, the, to the crowd that was there. 
This is his launch point into his sermon. And I'd like to think with you just for a moment about how he begins this sermon. It is striking. I'd maybe say subtly striking. You, you may not catch on to it immediately, but hopefully you will in a, in a few moments. It is striking to know what Peter does not say as he begins this sermon where he's going to present the work of Jesus on behalf of all of these people. It's important to take note of how he does not begin. And what I want to say is that he doesn't begin by preaching Jesus Christ to the crowd. Now, just think about that for a moment. After being so deliberate and clear about the healing that had taken place, he said, he was very clear, it is in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, that I command, walk. When Peter is asked, what's going on by the crowd? How did this happen? He begins, at the very beginning, by saying, what? What does he start with? He begins by saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you might think that this is just some religious segue into talking about Jesus. And he does talk about the work of Christ. But it's not merely a segue into that. The very foundation of the gospel and the heart of the Christian message does not begin with Jesus Christ, but God the Father. And I want to be careful that I'm not misunderstood on this point. For as central as Jesus Christ is to the gospel story, the good news, we must remember what is the most popular Bible verse in the world. What is it? And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. You're right. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus should be forever praised and glorified and exalted for his work for condescending, for coming down from his glory in the heavens, for taking our form, for being born a man and living as a perfect sacrifice for you and for me, and for dying on our behalf. And he is glorified. God has glorified him. And we worship and glorify him. But... His sacrifice is the heart of the gospel, but it is not where it begins. All of what Jesus did was set in motion for a purpose. And what was that purpose? What was it? It was to bring many sons to the Father. It was to reconcile the world back to God. After we had lost unity and fellowship with him through sin. It is significant that in these first sermons by Peter, he begins and ends by speaking about God the Father and his work that he glorified his son, that he raised his son from the dead. We must start with God as well. In our lives, 
in our witness, we must begin with God. We must start with the whole message of the Bible. And that means laying out why Jesus came in the first place. What significance does Jesus have to you or to anyone you speak to if it is not to reconcile them back to God, to make us right with God the Father? Many want to call the world to Christ without any acknowledgement, without any real talk of repentance or the impasse that sin has put us with, us at with a holy and a righteous God, a God that describes himself throughout Scripture as a consuming fire, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. Many today want to talk of Christ. Many say, come to Jesus or make a decision for him, as if we can start and end just with Jesus Christ. Many talk about the good that Jesus can do, how following his teachings can improve your life, and they can, and yet they do not acknowledge the central fact that all of us have been separated from God the Father. And it was to bring reconciliation to that relationship that Jesus came. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to reconcile us. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, for us, out of His love for us. And this is how Peter preaches. This is how he starts. I want us to take note of that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In their amazement over the healing of the crippled man, Peter recognizes that the crowd is distracted by peanuts on the ground when above their head is the aurora borealis shining bright in the night sky. They're focused on this cripple experiencing the phenomenon of this healing, and he's seeking to pull their gaze upward. So Peter steps out into the center of the temple, and he says, why are you amazed by the fact that this crippled man has been healed? Why do you look at us as if we're the ones who accomplished anything? You're, he does not want them to focus on the wrong thing, and we talked a little bit about that last week. It's not the miracle for miracle's sake that has any importance. It was what the miracle signified to this crowd that was important for them to understand. It was the miracle that pointed, it was what the miracle pointed them toward that contained significance as it related to them. Are you amazed at this? Are you amazed at this? Be amazed at God. Think on what God has done. He begins there. And what has God done that is so worthy of these people's amazement? And attention. Throughout this sermon, Peter preaches of the God who disrupts human lives. I was thinking about this, and I see it again and again throughout this whole passage. Peter is going to rift, riff on the God who disrupts humanity. 
Think about the concept of disruption. What is disruption? Disruption is a disturbance that, that interrupts something. Uh, today we hear about disruptors in the marketplace or disruptors in new technology. That's, that's probably one of the most common uh, ways in which we hear the term unless you have children. When I think about a concept of disruption, you know what I think of? I think of mattresses. Now they come in a box and they unfold. You take them out of a giant Ziploc bag and they go, they come to life and they are comfortable. I remember when we first got married, Aliyah and I came back from our honeymoon and we didn't have a bed. I had my futon from college. That's about what we had. Yep. And uh, I remember going to the elder beerman down the street here on Central Avenue, Central and Secor. And I don't think it's there anymore. And I remember going up to the whatever, the second floor, third floor, and walking out onto the floor to try and find a mattress. I think it was one of the biggest purchases we had ever made at that point. And we're walking around, and, you know, here's this. I hope we don't have any mattress salesmen in the room, but... The guy slithers on up to us, you know, and I just remember his tone. Ah, oh, Simmons mattress, Simmons mattress. And he kept on talking about Simmons mattresses and, and why don't I sit down on this mattress and springs and thousands of springs and comfort and contour and blah, 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 Simmons mattress. And, you know, and I came away from that event having spent my money on a Simmons mattress. The reason I know about other mattresses is because the mattress didn't hold up to what the guy said it would. <laughs> and uh, after, you know, four or five years, it felt like, uh, I don't know, it felt, it felt bad. Um, and so we went shopping again, and the next mattress we got arrived at our doorstep. I didn't have to have any interaction with a, with a guy in a suit at the second floor of Elder Bierman. So you have these, you have these new inventions, these things. You know, there's, there's various disruptions all around us, you know, streaming, right? Uh, AI, uh, Uber, you know, you could, you could pick a lot of different things that disrupt markets or that disrupt your life. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what disruption does. Disruption confronts the status quo, right? These companies that started shipping mattresses confront the status quo that you need some guy in a dirty suit talking with you about all the qualities of this mattress and having you, you know, lay down on it so you feel like you're implicated into buying it. They confront that. They do away with it. They challenge it. When something is disrupted, it is more than interrupted. Often when I'm interrupted, I can, I can go right back to what I was doing before. You know, Interact, interruption, okay, now I'm back. Interruption, now I'm back. With a, with a disruption, there's this, this added element that you can't just go right back to it. Something's been changed. So with the time that we have remaining this morning, I'd like to speak with you about the God who disrupts and the grace of his disruption. God disrupts the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you think about that. How did God disrupt Abraham? Well, Abraham was the son of a pagan man who was a nobody. And all we're told about him is that Abraham had moved north with his father and was living in Haran, which is in northern Mesopotamia. And out of that nothingness of a background, nothing notable at all, God disrupts Abraham's life 
We're told in Genesis, very randomly, after hearing that, you know, Abram Abraham at the time is living with his wife Sarai, that God came to him out of nowhere. And he said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land that I'm going to show you. A disruption pulled up from the roots that he had started putting down and redirected to some mysterious land that God said he was going to show him. This is disruption. Then you consider the life of Isaac. And I think of a, a couple times where he was significantly disrupted. First, when he was young, at the top of Mount Moriah, after God had called Abraham to sacrifice his only son to him, and you think, what? What is that? But he goes with his father up the mountain. And he's laid upon the altar, and we're told again in Genesis that Abraham raised the, the knife of flint up into the air. And then suddenly, at that point, another disruption and a glorious one. What's that sound? What is that noise? Oh, there's a ram in the thicket, and God tells Abraham, I've provided a sacrifice for you. Take your son down off that altar. A disruption. But he comes into another disruption later in, in his life, maybe uh, a different sort of disruption. God blesses him with two children, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac's boys grew up, and we're told that Esau was a mighty hunter and that Jacob was a peaceful man, a tender of the fields. And we're told that Isaac loved Esau, but his wife Rebekah loved Jacob. And you can imagine the way that life would have gone in that family with that sort of uh, relationship between the father and the mother. Isaac loved his son Esau. And yet we're told that God disrupts that again. This time he cuts against Isaac's desire to elevate to promote his firstborn son. God said, the older shall serve the younger. Disrupting, disrupting Isaac's plan for his two sons. Disruption. Later in Genesis, we read again about Jacob, the third of these men that are mentioned here. And what are we told? Well, we're told that Jacob uh, had a lot of conflict with his brother, and so Jacob was on the run. Man on the run, right? He's on the run. But he isn't allowed to continue running forever. And so what we're told is that God disrupts his running by appearing to him in a vision in the night, confronting him and telling him that I will not leave you or forsake you, and that he couldn't outrun God, that God would be with him, and that he would accomplish through Jacob, all the things that he had said he was going to, which is, in essence, saying, you're gonna, you can't run forever. You're going to do what I have decreed you're going to do. Disruption. I could go on. We could go on to Moses, and I could talk about how he was tending his father-in-law, Jephro's sheep, out in the middle of the wilderness. And all of a sudden, another phenomenon, very much like the healing of the crippled man outside the gate, a burning bush. But the bush was not burning up. 
How is that so? How could that be? And he gets down to inspect the phenomenon. And from out of that bush, God confronts him. He disrupts him and he says, you're tending your father's father-in-law's sheep, but that's not where you're going to be. You're going to go here. You're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt and you're going to take all the gold of the Egyptians with you. A disruption to Moses' life, to the path that Moses thought he was on. Same could be said with Samuel. Samuel's referenced at the bottom of this. And of course, when Samuel was a child, the disruption came in the, in the, in the still, quiet voice calling him in the night. Samuel, Samuel. He woke up and went to Eli. What, what do, why, why do you want me? I don't want you. Go back to bed. How many of us parents have said that to our kids before? I said that last night. Go back to bed. Happens again. Happens again. Finally, Eli realizes that God is speaking to Samuel and calling him out and giving him a purpose that is from him. Disruption. This is the God of the Bible. In his infinite grace and kindness, he draws back the veil and he disrupts our lives with revelations of himself. Revelations of what he calls us to, what he wants for us, what he expects of us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who disrupts. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been helplessly and blissfully lost without God's divine disruption, disrupting what had been to reveal himself and to reveal his will to them. And this isn't only true with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel. This is true with you. This is the way that God always works. He must work by disrupting you. When I was a child, my mom and dad used to take us to Pemberville, and we would hang out in, in that town for the afternoon. We'd go buy candy from John at the corner store. We'd go to the bridge and play poo sticks, and sometimes we'd walk uh, along the rail, the rail line that runs through Pemberville, and we would, I remember putting with my dad, pennies on the rail, and we'd wait for a train to come. And then we'd try and find the pennies flattened amongst all the rocks. That's a childhood memory of, of mine. As I got older, I don't remember if, my, I don't think my dad was with me. I remember deciding flattened pennies were so cool, I was going to try and flatten other things, things a little more big. So I remember finding other objects laying around the train yard, like uh, railroad ties. And, and, try, and uh, I remember, I remember, I don't remember the circumstances or who was around, but I do remember laying out various metal objects on the, on the train rail to see if a penny can get flattened, I wonder how, what will happen to this. Now, thankfully, um, I never disrupted a train off the rail. I also never got hit in the head with a rail spike. And I'm grateful for that. But, uh, but uh, I never disrupted a train off the track. Think about a scene from one of those old Western movies where somebody is tied down to the track of a railroad. The train's coming. And, you know, it's always an intense scene. This is essentially the way the Bible describes our condition. Except for the fact that we aren't under the threat of death, the Bible says that we are already dead, okay? That's why I say that 
God has to disrupt you. God must disrupt you. It's like saving you from that train you're helpless against, except for the fact that you're dead already, so it's even harder. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, and that's the disruption, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Disruption. God disrupts our certain fate by derailing the train of death because of his grace and mercy and love that he has for you and for me. There we were in our condition, minding our own business, too dead to want anything else. And in the midst of that, God brings his disruption. But case studies from the past, looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others on God's disruptive love are not all that Peter offers to this people in this sermon. He does more. Where does he go? Well, he begins with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he moves on to declare what God has done. He has done something so great, so marvelous, that the the healing of this crippled man should be pale in comparison. Notice the sharp contrast. If you have your Bibles out, just... Go down through 13, 14, 15, 16. Notice the contrast that Peter paints between the way that the Jews treated Christ. The Jews are who he's speaking to. The way that they treated Christ and the way that God treated his servant. Peter says to the crowd, you delivered and disowned Christ in the presence of Pilate. And as if that weren't a painful thing for them to hear the first time, he says it again in verse 14. And he presses them with these words, you disowned the holy and the righteous one. And you, if that weren't bad enough, you asked for a murderer to be released in his place. You put to death the prince of life. Well, they disowned Jesus Christ, what did God do? What did God do? God glorified Jesus Christ. They disowned him. God glorified him. While they delivered Jesus over to death, God raised him from the dead, a fact to which Peter and the apostles are eyewitnesses. This is disruption Not just in the past with their forefathers. This is a disruption right now in their life. They had their plans for Christ. They thought they knew his legitimacy and value or lack thereof. And they handed him over. But God, the Father, had different purposes. He had plans that confronted and disrupted the status quo of what the Jews thought about Christ. The way that they wanted to treat him the assumptions that they wanted to make about him. What Peter wanted the crowd to be amazed by was not the miracle of the man being healed, but the miracle of the Christ that they had rejected and disowned and put to death being raised up by God the Father. Just as God had disrupted the life of that crippled man laying outside the gate, so too God was disrupting their lives by raising and glorifying the Christ 
that they had disowned and put to death. The healing of that crippled man, the phenomenon that had once captured their attention and and amazement, was on the basis of faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was living and glorified. Peter was saying, don't be amazed by this man who walks. Be amazed that God has disrupted your wicked attempt to rid yourself of Jesus Christ. He isn't disgraced and disowned. He's been elevated. God has raised him from the dead, and he is now at the right hand of God the Father. Exalt him. Glorify him. Be amazed by him. God not only disrupts the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these these people in this crowd. He disrupts death itself. He, he, He raised his son from the dead. But we are not yet done seeing disruption in our passage. In verse 17, it says this, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. That's a very interesting phrase. What does Peter mean? He's been quite clear about their intent to disown and rid themselves of Jesus. He said it a couple of times. Now he says that they acted in ignorance, just as their rulers did. And yet, If you look at the next verse, Peter goes on to remind them that God has given them the prophets for thousands of years and they had announced and foretold the things that should be expected of this Messiah. 18 says, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he, God, has thus fulfilled. Christ has fulfilled. So when Peter says that the Jews were ignorant, he's not saying that they hadn't heard, that they hadn't been told, but what he's saying is that they hadn't listened. They had ignored. They had drowned out the sound from their ears from that. They, yeah, 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 yeah. They heard it, but they were ignorant of it. Don't make the mistake of confusing ignorance for innocence. We all want to think that if we're ignorant of something, it means we're innocent, but it's not the case. I've learned this multiple times the hard way. We were in Couture in, uh, I can't remember the country, somewhere, I can't remember the country, but we were in Couture um, on the Adriatic, and uh, Aliyah and I were driving around. We decided we wanted to stop and get coffee in the morning, and so all these cars were parked up along the street. thought, there's room for this little car for us to park right in here, so we pull up, as all the other cars were, get out of our car, walk across the street to the little cafe, and order our little, you know, cappuccino or whatever, and we're sitting there, and we walk back to the car 15 minutes later, and what, what do we have? A nice big pink slip in the front window. You think, what on earth is going on here? And, and it's not a language I don't even understand, you know? And uh, the officer was still right there. And I go up, you know, what, what, sir, what, what's going on? He points to the sign. 
my car was in the shadow of the sign. The sign was a circle, a blue circle with a red X on it. I'm thinking, okay, he says that means you can't park. And I said, but all these other people were, you know, you know I'm arguing with him. And he said, nope, it's clear you're told he had no mercy on me. You know, I wanted to think because I was ignorant that that meant I was innocent. It's just an illustration. You're not always, in- I was guilty. I had broken the law, right? I was ignorant of the fact. This has happened. More illustrations are coming to my mind right now of other times in America that I've done this. So I got- but we've all done this. We want to think that if we're ignorant, it means we're innocent. It's not the case. These people that Peter is speaking to aren't innocent. But he says that they were ignorant. Not because they had not been told, but they had refused to listen. And so here again, what do we have? We have a disruption. What we have is God disrupting their ignorance through Peter. They cannot say that they have not been told. They cannot say that they don't know, that they were unaware. They cannot claim ignorance anymore. God is disrupting them. But the things which God has announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, he has thus fulfilled. God is disrupting their ignorance. That is why he can call on them to turn and repent. Repent. They are not ignorant. They have been told. So what does all this have to do with us? Peter starts by you know, asking how they could be amazed at this cripple. Why? That rhetorical question that we started with. Why are you amazed by this? And we talked at the beginning about how he's setting up this contrast. He says that they shouldn't be amazed by the cripple, but rather they should have their minds blown away by the incredible grace of God disrupting their lives, the track that they had been on for generations as Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, all these men had lived lives that were radically uprooted and disrupted by God as the active agent of change in their lives. God was disrupting what would have been the status quo, radically altering the trajectory of their lives, just like the cripple, the cripple man. In essence, Peter is saying, you're surprised by this cripple? Have you been blind to all that God has done for you for the last couple of millennia? Then he presses them further and he says, Though the fact of Christ's resurrection has been foretold by the prophets and leaders from your past history, all through, you haven't listened or paid attention, and you're ignorant of those things which should have been clear to you, so let me disrupt your ignorance with this truth. It was for you first... The last verse of that chapter, it was for you first, those that disowned Jesus and handed him over, that God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked way. Wow, what a statement. This is the disruptive grace of God. And it isn't for only the Jews to whom Peter was speaking. It is also for you. It is for every man and woman whose sins Jesus died for, whose sins Jesus carried to the cross. If your sins are those sins which drove the nails into the hands and the feet of Christ, then marvel of marvels. What he comes disrupting your life with today is not vengeance and a sword, but grace and mercy 
of God. There will come a day when Jesus does disrupt this world, and it won't be with grace and mercy. The Bible is clear. One day he will come on a white horse with a sword to judge. But today, he, he is disrupting your life and extending to you mercy. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, marvel of marvels, by turning you, disrupting you from your wicked ways. It isn't enough that we just know about God. It isn't enough to acknowledge his existence. Just as we sit in church today, the Jews of that day were also in the temple. Their lives were not complete. They needed God's disruption. So too, Christian faith is not something that can merely be obtained by study. It is only found when God first disrupts your life, confronting what has been and changing it. Have you experienced the disruption of God's grace and mercy? Have you known what it is like for you to go, be going along on your merry way when all of a sudden God makes himself known to you in a manner that confronts and alters the status quo of your life, that changes the direction that you are headed in, that alters the ambitions and the desires of your heart? This is the basis of Christianity, God's disruption in our lives that causes us to turn and to change. Again, Peter, I think that this sermon is sort of, it's got two main sections. I kind of feel like it's got a chiastic structure. And, and the center portion, verse 19, being the, the call, therefore turn and repent of your sins. This is what Peter's calling you to do. If you have not experienced this sort of disruption by God, I I do pray and have prayed that you would not go from here this morning without hearing his words being heavy upon you. You may have been ignorant about Christ. You may have not understood the ramifications and effects that your sins have had on him. You might still be ignorant of many things, but today consider yourself informed and disrupted by this truth. That God raised up Jesus Christ from the dead to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. Therefore, repent and return. God is confronting us. God is disrupting us with this amazing truth. If you recognize God's disruption and embrace it, then you will live a life of amazement at what God has done for you. In, by contrast, the healing of the cripple seems small. It's only physical. Everything pales in contrast to the fact that God has raised up his servant to bless you when you disowned and rejected and delivered him to death. What an idea. What a reality. Might God grant to each one of you the wonderful grace of his disruption? Let's pray.